an interesting statistic that I use is when you look at public equities, you know, 87% of all public equities globally that went up a thousand percent or more over the last 10 years, that's a mouthful, 87% of public equities went up 10x or more over the last 10 years, originate out of microcap. And 82% of them are profitable. Interesting. And so if you want to find the next multi-bagger stock, you should look at something small, growing and profitable. And a lot of them, they're, they don't look like Google. They're not going to ever be that big. If you were to look at what does the average multi-bagger look like, it's simply a small business that can grow from 10 million in revenue to 30 million in revenue and not dilute me and grow earnings. Yep. And that's a 10-bagger. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get at investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. You didn't grow up Amish. No. You grew up in the brother, the brethren? Yes. Can we start there? Yeah. I just thought it was because you put it as one of the most interesting things and I have it ranked number one. Yeah. That you lived, you basically grew up in an Amish community, right? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't Amish, but so Lancaster County, there's about 500,000 people in Lancaster County, about 30,000 of them are Amish. And so the Amish tend to gravitate to their own communities. They're also very touristy areas because the number two industry in Lancaster is tourism. So people come in to stare at the Amish, watch them build furniture and milk a cow. Really? Yeah. People travel to watch? Oh, yeah. It's a big tourist thing. Okay. Yeah. And so you can you could travel through our county. And the county's big. It's probably about the size of Rhode Island. So it's a big, big county. But, I mean, you could, you could travel through that county 50 different ways and never see an Amish person, you know, because they, they kind of are in four or five or six different communities that they kind of hover around. But and it's it, a very interesting culture. I mean, they're, they're growing up. The people actually right behind us were Amish. And they were just a very kind people. And when you think about the Amish people, they don't really have any vices. All they focus on is family, God, and their business. There's no distractions. There's no internet. There's not worrying about their perception on social media. There's nothing. No, nothing. So when you think about if you just focused your life on those three areas, what would you do? And they're the most competitive people in business you'll ever meet. Really? Because... When the sun goes down, it gets dark, they go to bed. Yeah. And when the sun get, goes up, whether it's 5 a.m. or 7 a.m. due to daylight savings time, you know, they get up. And in the meantime, they're probably thinking about business. And you don't want to compete against an Amish person, you know, because they probably outthought you. 
you know, so, (laughs) (laughs) so it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. This is, I'll, I'll go through a series of dumb questions, but their businesses are obviously selling through to the general population of America. They're not just selling within each other, correct? Yeah. And it it is mainly kind of hands-on trades, construction, furniture, gazebos, you know, building things like that. Yep. But they also, one of the companies, I forget if it's Boreo or whatever, but it's kind of a little bit of a grill that it's kind of gone national now. Like they were creators of that. They get into interesting things too. It's not just all crafty things, you know? So yeah. And some of them are national businesses too. And even today, like with all of media and internet and social media, they've still managed to stay completely out of it. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They stay in their lane. When I, when I was in my mid twenties, I moved up to the Poconos, which is the Northeastern portion of Pennsylvania. Yeah. And this was, when was that? That was like 2005. And so just to give you an idea and you know how the real estate market was kind of in that 2005, six range, I think my trailing 12 month income was about (laughs) $3,000 and I got a hundred percent loan to buy a home. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Exact story. You know, bought a, I think it was a hundred thousand dollar kind of end unit of an old textile warehouse that was completely gutted. And so I, I got a second mortgage on it to, to redo it, you know, cause obviously I had the income to support the two mortgages. <laughs> and so I had Amish from back in Lancaster, which was probably on a two, three hour drive. Yeah. Come up and do the work. And, and probably did it. Oh, quick. Yeah. You know, and, and back then it was probably, I got three Amish bit at combined $20 an hour to yep. come up. And when they're younger, they're allowed to drive cars. So, you know, one of them had a pickup truck and they could drive up. It's only when they, I forget exactly the term for it, but when they get older and they have to, you know, no more cars, grow a beard. Do they look at us as crazy? Like, are they even interested in our life? Or are they like, those people are nuts? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. You know, but they're kind, you know, it's like, they're, they're not, they're not too closed off where they're not going to say hi back when you say hi to them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you grow up in Lancaster. You put your first trailing three grand down on some real estate, but that's not <laughs> that's not actually what you ended up doing. No, no. How did you get into microcap? That's a that's a good question. So when I was I'm 43, so when I was a teenager in high school, that was I was that was the late 90s. Okay. That was the dot com bubble, technology bubble. When I was a sophomore in high school, my parents sat me down and they said, you know, we'd save for you about $20,000 for your college education. This is all you're getting. You decide where you want to go. You want to go to the private university up the street and blow that in a semester you can and go in debt for the rest. That's on you. Or you can go to a local community college, commute, and probably will last you the whole time. And uh, I was like, all right. So they introduced me to their financial advisor and I opened up an account, put that $20,000 in there. And he started kind of sending me some information on small cap tech companies. Okay. And I ended up Taking that 20,000, putting it in three companies. This was like 96. And that period of the market, I mean, a monkey could have threw a dart at a newspaper and hit a winning stock if it was tech, right? Yeah. So, and that's what I was a monkey throwing a dart <laughs> at a newspaper, <laughs> you know? And so it ended up, I ended up 5Xing that by the time I graduated. So the 20 turned into 100 wow. by the time I graduated and I got bit by the greed bug. And just like every win that you don't deserve early on, you think it's skill when it's luck. Yeah. And so I ended up just going to the local community college, commuting, being able to pay for my tuition as I went. I got a job at an actual financial advisor down the street. 
I was basically a glorified secretary working there. And I wrote down the crash of that cycle. And that 100,000 turned into eight coming down the other end. And at the same time, I was basically re receptionist at this, you know, Edward Jones office that had a thousand customers. And they, you know, I was fielding calls from people in every emotional state. And I was oh like, my gosh. and up to that point, you know, I even had conversations with him about me, him like good nighting some of the assets over to me and setting up my own, you know, Edward Jones office there. And that seemed like a good idea. But having gone through that trough and dealing with other people and their emotions, you know, I was just like, you know, I don't want to deal with other people. You know, it's hard <laughs> enough dealing with your own emotions, making decisions, let alone other people, especially financial ones. So, so then I, the companies I invested in that turned into micro caps, they were small caps. Yeah. And they went down. <laughs> how, how do you get into it? Yeah. Just, so well, I like to say I was kind of baptized into the micro caps <laughs> <laughs> as, as my portfolio troughed. <laughs> and so that would have been, you know, 2021. I was at that point a sophomore in college and so I started looking at microcaps. I'm kind of one of those people when I lose money in something, I want to figure out what, why I lost money and figure it out. Yep. And I feel like there's usually two types of people. You know, 90% of people probably run away from that situation. Doesn't They don't want to touch another small company in their life. Yep. And so I just happened to kind of dig in a little bit harder. And XM Satellite Radio was a company that back then, before it merged with Sirius, and now it's in every car that are, that's sold, XM was the leader, although they didn't really have many subscribers. They didn't have many OEM manufacturers signed up to use the technology. It was a story stock. It was a microcap. They launched, you know, probably three satellites up into space, had $2 billion of debt, no revenue, you know. So, and the stock was 40% held short at the time, which means everybody was betting that it was going to go bankrupt or go down at the very least. And um, I was mesmerized by the story. So, I saw the CEO was presenting up in New York City, which is about a three-hour car ride away. And I called the conference organizer. I told him I was Ian Castle from Castle Capital. I you know, made that up. <laughs> and they said, yeah, sure, come up, come on up. So I ended up taking a bus from Lancaster to New York City, you know, put on the suit that I wore for my my high school, you know, senior photo, still fit and put on too many LBs, you know, during my <laughs> freshman year <laughs> and made my way up there. And I, long story longer, I ended up, kind of weaseling my way into a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the CEO, Hugh Panera of XM Satellite Radio. And I had a 10-minute conversation with him. And, you know, as you can imagine, my eyes were as big as saucers and he could have said anything. I would have thought it was amazing. Yeah. But I ended up leaving that conversation, getting on the bus, taking that $8,000 I had left, buying XM Satellite Radio at $1.78 per share. And again, it was all luck, but they started signing OEM agreements. It triggered a giant short squeeze in the equity. And the stock went from a dollar seventy eight to thirty four in fourteen months. Oh my god! So you're and back. So, yeah, so I'm back. You know, and so what was what's interesting about that is I do think like how you start out and how you make your early money kind of dictates where you line up on the risk curve. You know, yeah. and so because I would say the first time I made money in the dot com bubble, I didn't know what I was doing, but I made money, crashed, then I made it again. And I've always been more comfortable with risk concentration because of that, because I know it could be done because I've already done it. And so like the next 10 years was basically me kind of losing money and making it back, losing money and making it back and learning that way. But it all, I also had a few mentors at that point in time. So after that experience, I was in college. I wanted to devote myself to kind of micro cap investing. And what captivated me to the space was having that conversation with that CEO, the ability for a moron like me to sit across the table from someone like you and have a conversation. And I felt like I could get some qualitative nuggets of information 
in that scenario. Obviously, I couldn't do that with Steve Jobs or anybody else. And so it was really the qualitative aspect of microcap investing that initially captivated me to it. And still what draws me in today is that. And so from there, most of the activity in these small microcap companies is on, was on message boards, public message boards, because they're mainly retail owned because they're so small, so liquid, no institution owns them. And so I gravitated to those boards and kind of learned the ropes of investing, found a couple mentors too on those boards that kind of showed me how they, they invested and, and at the same time kind of devoted myself to just wanting to be a full-time private microcap investor as quickly as humanly possible. And went right from undergrad into grad school because I got, luckily I got into an assistantship that paid for the grad school. And I just really needed a socially acceptable way to waste time to hone this craft. And that was that. And then after that, I did, did a couple of years of consulting from six or 2006, seven, and then right in the depths of the GFC and the crisis kind of cut the cord of the consulting I was doing, just became a full-time private microcap investor, just living off my balance sheet. And so anyway, it's a long story and it's halfway through it, but. We're gonna get through yeah, the other half. Yeah, yeah. There's a few things I wanna pick on though before we get there. Sure. One, just real quick. A story stock, I'm assuming that is just something that is has momentum because the story sounds really good. Yeah, it doesn't def- really have the fundamentals. Exactly. I would define a story stock as something that doesn't have any financials, or fundamentals, or revenues. You said that you 90% of people would have left microcaps, but something about you decided to like lean in and study why microcaps lose money is kind of how you put it. Yeah, I mean, it. Like what'd you learn, I guess, is kind of the question. Or when you went back after it went from a hundred to eight. I know you were still young and yeah. What you but at that time, what did you think you learned? Well, I think I I think I was mainly in the mindset of I lost this so quickly and but I knew I could make it back just as quickly because I did make money in the small cap, you know, bull market. I was just looking for I don't want to say double down on something that probably lost me money in the past, but you know, I was really just trying to I was just pissed off, you know? Yeah. I was just like, I know I'm better than this, yep. you know? And I was staring at microcasts in my portfolio, and then I was just looking at other ones, and I was like, let's let's see if we can figure this out. Because I knew enough then, and I followed enough people where I knew that microcap investing was an interesting spot because it is a majority of public equities that exist. Really? Yeah. And most of the best performing stocks ever started as microcaps. Most of the best investors ever, from Buffett to Lynch to... Greenblatt, they all started a microcap, you know, and it's a space that, you know, probably all in in the United States supports about two and a half million jobs. So it's important to the economy, although that's about the same amount that Walmart has, but as a whole, Uh, but it's a very small space. So 10,000 public companies in North America, give or take about 50% are microcaps. And these are small companies that most people have never heard of before. And that's the opportunity. And most of the are most of those small caps because they were once big caps, large caps, or most of them small caps because they choose to go public at a very early stage of their lives. I would say twenty years ago would have been more geared toward more small companies going public small. Today, they're here specific in the U.S. There's less small companies going public small, and so it's the companies today are mainly either fallen angels or they've just always been small and. You know, they've just always been small. And is there a misnomer or misinterpretation? When I think of a really small business, I remember talking at Main Street. We'll get into it in a bit. But you said some of these companies are like five or ten million dollars of enterprise value in their public. Yeah. Is that right? No, that's exactly right. You know, 
And then I just immediately go, well, the cost to run a comp, like the cost to be public is so high. How could you possibly public at that size? And I think I remember you saying something like it's not as expensive as some people think. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I was excited about presenting out there at Main Street Summit was, I mean, I think if you're in a room of even financially astute professionals, and if you were to ask everybody in that room, how much does it cost to be public? I think most people would say somewhere between two and 5 million per year of additional costs on top of your private cost structure. And I think that in itself is enough of a headwind. You know, people believe that, that nobody wants to go public, but it's a lot less than that. I actually asked a few of my portfolio companies that, and these are sub hundred million market cap companies, you know, what they pay. And the real answer is probably around three to $500,000 a year. And it's not insignificant, but it's not 5 million, you know, and you can spend just like everything. You you can go buy a Ferrari, you can buy a Toyota, you can, you can spend as much as you want, you know, (laughs) but there's a, yeah, but there's a giant, an interesting statistic that I use is when you look at public equities, you know, 87% of all public equities globally that went up a thousand percent or more over the last 10 years, that's a mouthful, 87% of public equities went up 10X or more over the last 10 years, originated out of microcap. And 82% of them are profitable. Interesting. And so if you want to find the next multi-bagger stock, you should look at something small, growing and profitable. And a lot of them, they're, they don't look like Google. They're not going to ever be that big. If you were to look at what does that average multi-bagger look like, it's simply a small business that can grow from 10 million in revenue to 30 million in revenue and not dilute me and grow earnings. Yep. And that's a 10-bagger. That's not. And those are out there. Yep. Yeah. And so that's generally what I'm trying to find as a microcap investor is try to find them earlier. Earlier, the better. Why do you think Buffett, Greenblatt, some of those guys started in microcap. Is that because they truly felt like that's where the most returns were, or they just that's the, with the amount of money they were playing with at the time that made the most sense? I think it's a combination of all those things. I think if you're comparing, kind of, there's three ways to own small business. You have like venture capital. Yep. You have private equity, small bri- private equity, kind of like Brent B. Shore. Yeah. And then you have small microcap. Okay. You have institutional inflows mainly taking over those first two buckets now you know it's like the andreessen horowitz's or whatever vc they're getting the best deals on the pe side you're seeing a lot of kind of middle market like private equity trying to go after those companies on the private side it's pretty institutionalized and it's becoming more so here in microcap it's the constraint of illiquidity that keeps out any institutionalization it's actually probably the only one that has a pure structural advantage to the smaller investor because as we all know, it's a it's a benefit to be able to mark your book to whatever you want, kind of, you right. know, when you own a company or own a majority of a private company or whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, institutional capital don't like when a five hundred dollar trade can influence up or down twenty percent in equity. You explain, know, explain that. I mean, so, they're so illiquid. Like somebody decides to buy five hundred dollars worth of stock, all of a sudden the stock goes up ten percent. Oh yeah. You know, versus yeah. down ten percent, that ruins your your nav and your performance incentive at the end of the year for your. <laughs> private equity firm you know they don't like that you know so it's that structural advantage to the small astute investor that has been in place for decades and will probably remain for decades and i think buffett saw that greenblatt saw that you know and that's why they don't invest in anymore because you get so big with your assets you grow out of the space and you go upstream to small cap and mid cap just like they did 
So you've had to make a conscious decision to to stay within relative size so that you yeah. can remain in the micro cap space. Yeah. Like you our, can't go have a $20 billion fund or a $2 yeah. billion fund and be in this space. You can. I mean, it, usually people are like, how do I get exposure to micro cap? Well, you get it through two or three different indices, but they own 1,700 micro caps. 70% of them are unprofitable. And or you own some of the larger open-ended funds that are 500 million assets. Yeah. But again, you're owning a big bunch of companies. Like an and, index. I, and I feel like in microcap more so than any other asset class, the worst way to get exposure to this asset class is to own all of them. Yeah. It's a stock picker's market. Yeah. You know, more so than any other market cap class that's out there. When you said 70% aren't making money, is that usually because they're so early stage that they're just not there yet? Or is it just because they're on the downside of a, a bad string of business. No, I mean, I think in general, companies go public to raise money. Yeah. You know, and the irony of that is the best performing ones are the ones that don't need to raise money. Yep. And that's kind of the irony. Overall, the actual math is 85% of microcaps are unprofitable. Yep. And so when people ask about wanting to get into the space, I said, you know, just focus on the 15% that are actual real businesses and that cuts out. 90% of the heartache. All right, let's go back to 08. Okay. So you, now you're, I'm doing this full time. Yeah. Then what started to happen? Well, 08 was, in 07, I was thinking about becoming a full-time private investor. And I was, I didn't know that I would be tested right around the corner, but I was kind of waiting. I kind of wanted to be tested, kind of an environment. Yep. I didn't know that environment was coming. <laughs> But I learned a couple of valuable lessons in that experience. And I, I've always been a concentrated investor. Back then, I was in three or four companies. You know, I would just know them better than anyone else, have my pulse in the business the best I could, uh, frequent conversations with management, which I still do today, know what I own. And at that point in time, one of the companies I was invested in was, I think it was in July of 2008, I traveled to Salt Lake City, met with a company called Zag, Z-A-G-G. They were putting kind of plastic film. They were the first ones to put like a plastic film as a screen protector on an iPhone because that was like the second generation oh, yeah. iPhone 3G just came out and they were kind of a peripheral kind of player in that and it became like an Apple play over time. But back then it was a $5 million revenue company that was, or maybe five or 10 million in revenue company that was breaking even. Flew out there, met with a the management team, ended up buying a position at 65, 70 cents. And they just started crushing it because they were getting, starting a distribution at Best Buy and all these like brick and mortar. They also had kiosks and malls and things like that. And even during that environment through the second half of 08 into early 09, like they doubled the size of their business. They started earning more money. They didn't need to dilute. And even in that environment, when I think the S&P drawed down 52%, that stock went up 280%, even in that environment and was still becoming institutionalized on the buy side, which was in interesting. And it was one of those things that kind of crystallized my investment philosophy of, I really want to find these really small ones because they aren't institutionalized yet, which means during bear markets, the redemption cycles, like they're not getting bid whacked by institutions and indices selling out because it's risk off. Like they're not owned by anybody, Yeah, you know? And in fact, on the institutional side, institutions are always attracted to fast-growing, profitable, unique businesses that they don't own. Yep. Even in a drawdown like 2008. Yep. 
And so that kind of crystallized my investment philosophy from that point forward about what I want to find. Yep. You know, those situations. So I feel like that's my best defense in a bad market and in a good market. And so that wasn't the, the initial question, but I ended up going full time. I think it was around the trough in early 2009. Okay. Yeah. And I had my own blog for a while where I was talking about some of the ideas I liked and that was when kind of blogging was still relatively new. And I had a big following through the blog. And after a while, like every time I would post on something, it would push the stock up or down depending on what I would post. And it's great for your ego, but I just didn't like it. You know, the powers that be don't like that, you know, type of stock movement, you know? Wait, why? Well, I mean, people just don't like, people think it's like it's a pump or something like that. And it's just not a good place. So I ended up deciding just to shut my blog down because the last thing I posted on was like a New York stock exchange listed company. And it went up 300% on a day on like $500 million worth of volume. And it was just like, I'm like, all right, done. Tapped out, you know? Wow. Shutting it down. And so I, I kind of, shut down the blog and I wanted to, but I really enjoyed talking about ideas and talking to other people about their ideas. So I kind of came up with the idea of Microcap Club yeah. back then. And it was just, okay, let's get all the smart people in this niche of investing in one one place, online community. I kind of cut my teeth on public message boards. It's sort of like that, but a private community. And launched that in 2011. And, you know, 13 years later, you know, it's I think it's probably the best brand and microcap in the world. And I think it's the best community in the world. And it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool spot and it's pretty small, you know, but we have the best stock pickers in our niche on the planet that are talking about what they like and why, you know, and discussing due diligence and collaborating and, and all that stuff. And it continues to be a big idea generator for me and the the small fund that I manage. It continues to be probably the best networking tool on the planet in the microcap space, build network with other investors, build out your relationships. Cause as you know, in your business, your, your biggest asset evolves from something analytical or some edge you might think you have to one of being relational down the road, yep. you know, cause it's all about whether it's real estate or microcap investing, your ability to get to the truth quicker than somebody else on a, on a real estate investment that you're looking at or on a company that I'm looking to invest in. So just being able to broaden out the relationship aspect is probably the number one thing for me is being able to get to people and form those relationships. How did you start it? So you, uh, you obviously started calling your friends and you're like, Hey, will you start posting here? Yeah. Everybody that had been on your blog and engaged, you were trying to move onto this platform. Yeah. Like in and just other investors that I met on message boards that I knew were good. Cause yeah. I, I wanted to be like, just people that knew what they were doing, like experienced yeah. people. And did you vet and you vetted kind of the applicants before they could come on? Yeah, I mean, our application process evolved over the years. But I mean, honestly, the first three years, it was mainly me talking to myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say, because a, a community yeah. of one, it, like if you're the it's second tough. person in on a community, you're like, I'm going to join this and talk to Ian. Yeah. So those first, you know, I don't know how many people it took before you kind of start having those network effects. It's it's really, I wish I could say I have the secret sauce to it, but it continues to be a grind, like having a small, active, private community is difficult, Yep, you know, because microcap investors in particular were such a unique, eclectic breed, you know, because half the people are small business owners. They own a business themselves, they're retail, smart retail investors, which are some of the best investors I know, by the way, because they know what small business is and what it takes. Yep. And then you have some of the institutional ones too, but we're all just kind of unique, a unique bunch, kind of like herding cats. Yep. 
How many uh, people are on it? We have 250 members. Okay. And, and it's been consistent over 10 years. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so like going to like 500 members would be just crazy. Well, in the, in the early years, I cared about what that number was. And then I realized I would rather have a very active small community than a less active large one. Yep. You know, and so we, the way to get in is you submit an, an investment thesis on your favorite microcap stock. The membership itself votes on the quality level, yes or no vote. Oh, if it's really? good enough. And if you get 70% yes vote, you get in. And if you don't, you don't. And so today we have 20 applications a month that come in. Probably about four people get in. And we probably prune out about four people that become inactive because we have some activity rules to keep, to keep being a member, which I found out you need the carrot, but you also need the stick. Yeah. You know, or else it doesn't really mean anything to people. So we prune out people. So it's always been like 250. And what happens over time is it just becomes a better and better small private community. And it's just taken time to get it. It's like pruning back a tree. You know, so what so. is like a, an amazing user doing on a, is it a weekly basis, a monthly basis? Like if you said the perfect user on Microcap Club is doing X, what are they doing? I would say just since most of the forum itself, there's a thousand companies that have been profiled in the club since inception. Okay. So continuing to profile new ideas and keeping the ideas they profiled and talked about or originated before up to date, yep. the latest earnings report, news, material events, also engaging people on other people's ideas. Yeah. And not in a rah, rah, let's go, you know, bull type, but being critical. Yeah. You know, I think a combination of those things makes, you know, for the best, best members. And it's difficult because we have, we have a bunch of members that might only be on there because of the one company they follow that they like, yep. you know, and they're not going to engage with somebody else and somebody else. So it's, you're always kind of bumping up against that, but yeah. I think we've had, I think we've done pretty good. And so we have 250 members and then launched it in 2011, 2016. I was, I was sick of spending 40 grand a year myself, keeping this website going, looking professional and bigger than what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, all right, how do we monetize this? That doesn't kind of destroy the ethos of what we have. So kind of layered on a subscriber component to where I was running into a lot of fund managers, brokers, people that have compliance departments that weren't able to participate on a message board, Yeah, but they could pay to get just view only access of the forum. And so net, we launched a subscriber or subscription, like I was in 2016. And so now we have several hundred subscribers from around the world that pay just to get view only access of the conversations we're having internally, you know, on that forum. And a lot of them are institutional. You can see who's looking in on yeah any one idea or topic being discussed. I mean, you can't really see who it is, but they can engage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess we're going to get back to, to the investing side, but how critical do you think building that private community has just been to your career? Because like we met on Twitter, one of the largest communities in the world, and there's a ton of value there. But I could also make the argument some of the most advantageous real estate ideas I have happen in a 12 person WhatsApp group that I'm in. Yeah. How would you rank that micro cap club into the evolution of your success in micro cap investing? Well, for me personally, it's been huge. Like I said, I mean, the idea, what's interesting over the last call it five years, it's gotten more and more global. So five years ago, I would say 90% of our membership and audience were U S and Canadian investors yeah. and U S and Canadian stocks. Now it's like 50, 50% probably 20% European, probably 12% Australian, you know, those types of things. So it's getting more and more global. And I've become more of a global investor over the years. 
And it's helped kind of helped me make that transition too, is just seeing the idea flow and seeing smart people talking about stocks in Germany or Australia or places like that. Yeah. So for me, it's been huge. And I think it's a great top of funnel idea generator for other people as well, you know, in, in, the, in the same way. And I still have, like you said, with your 12 person WhatsApp group or whatever it was, it's, you still have that core group of people that you talk to, that I talk to, you know, on a very frequent basis you know, that you still have on the side that you're still doing that. But this is kind of a great way to continue to build, build that up, creating new friends, things like that, new colleagues. All right, let's talk about your process. Yeah. So there's, you said there's like thousands of these companies out there. Yeah. Obviously, Microcap Club is throwing out ideas. You're concentrated. How many companies do you own today? About 10. Okay. Yeah. So you've picked 10 of them. Like, how do you go from up here to down here? Yeah, and it's, it's a good question. I, mean, I think maybe I may take one step back. Okay. With micro cap investing, you have the same flavors of investing as up in large cap. They're just smaller businesses. Okay. It's like somebody coming to you and asking you and telling you they're a real estate investor. You're just like, what does that mean? Like, are you multifamily or industrial? You know, what, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with micro caps. So I think it's always important to have the person describe what their flavor of investing is. So yep. you can kind of drill down into that. And, you know, you find a lot of value, deep value growth. You have people that just focus on mining or focus on oil and gas or focus on this or that. You have niche. All those same elements are down here in microcap, which makes it cool too. So I would say kind of getting to my flavor of investing, you know, at a top level, you know, I'm looking for really scarce businesses that just happen to be public. So kind of one of one businesses or one of two that are publicly traded. Okay. Because I'm a big fan of scarcity, you know, okay. especially if it's a small growing double digit profitable business because so i know eventually institutions will likely come for that equity at some point in time just like people come for a picasso once a year pay yeah. up same same type of dynamic and looking for ones that have a good balance sheet so they can endure through a recession they can be aggressive when their competitors aren't you know and also you know, i wrote co-authored two books on intelligent fanaticism and wrote them in 2016 2017 with my co-author and it was really a probably a three-year project of, you know, if you want to find great companies early, you got to find great leaders early. Yeah. And so we kind of went back and looked at a whole bunch of leaders that would be similar to that book that you're looking at right there, of people that built up a small company into a large one and then dominated their niche or geography or industry over decades. Like, how did they do that? And so that's what those two books are about. And kind of fine-tune my lens for finding those types of intelligent fanatic leaders in small microcap companies. That's where kind of the the term for my the small fund I manage intelligent intelligent fanatics capital management came from. You know, I was I had that as a question. Yeah, that's where it came from. So intelligent fanatics is a term that Charlie Munger used originally. Okay, and in, in one of his speeches, and he mentions a couple of these folks. And so our first book is kind of taking the the folks that he mentioned in his speeches and kind of tearing apart their backgrounds and like how they built their businesses and pulling out lessons from it. And then we kind of then use that as a blueprint to try to find some other ones in the public sphere and also private companies. Yeah. And then kind of retell it again. So I'm trying to find those kind of intelligent fanatic leaders in these small companies as well. And then obviously there's a valuation metric. Okay, can we fundamentally double our money, money in three years or 25% net caker, you know, on the investment side based off fundamentals, not story. Yep. And I think we're, I've probably evolved even more so over the last five years is I would, that's where Microcap Club comes into play. I think 
for me and my flavor of investing, I find that I'm getting closer to wanting to be a partner with my, the investments I invest in. And so very similar to a venture capital or private equity, you know, they become a partner and want to help the company grow because of the knowledge they've gained off the reps they've put in, you know, doing that. And I would say that's sort of our edge. You know, I think that's probably an important question to ask any fund manager, like, what's your edge? If they can't answer it, you probably shouldn't invest with them. Yeah. You know, it's like my edge is my reputation. And yeah, it's the 20 years in microcap club and intelligent fanatics, but it's really what I find is when I find a very small, good business with a great leader, they still lack capital markets experience. Yep. And they've usually been given bad advice from an investment bank or whoever took them public. And um, if I can fill that gap and become sort of a trusted kind of invisible advisor to them to make sure they don't screw up, you know, that's where I can be an asset and impact a positive outcome for them and my investment. And so I kind of take a partnership model of trying to find something small. And that could mean even a direct investment. You know, I'm talking about small direct investment. We're talking about tens of millions. I'm talking about like literally a $500,000 check. Yep. Like, let me buy 4% of the company. Yep. You know, or a million or whatever it is. Yep. And then let's let's be partners and try to grow this. And I feel like it's a, it's almost, a, I don't want to say a better way of doing it, but, you know, in VC or, or PE, it's like, they're listening to you because you own a majority of the business or you own a preferred share class. Yeah. You're, they're forced to listen to you. Yeah. Like with me, I'm owning three to, I'm trying to stay below 5% because that's when you have to file with the SEC. Oh, it's really? kind of like showing your hand. Yeah. Like I kind of want to stay under the radar a little bit with our investments. Yeah. Um, so it's like usually at 4.9, I'll stop, you know? And so they don't have to listen to me, you know? And so you, you kind of go into it where they trust you, you trust them. And that's, that's where it's, you not only can make a lot of money, but you feel like you're doing more than just buying low and selling high in a transactional type setting, like most stock investing is. Do you start setting that relationship before you even start buying the first share? And yes. And then th that's kind of why you're buying into it. Or do you get to 4.9 and say, Hey, here I am. No, it's, um, it's just like how any really great relationship grows. Yeah. Start small and you build trust through the reciprocation and seeing them and how they react in different scenarios and good times, bad times, when they're crying, when they're angry, you know, and seeing what type of person they are. Yep. And that's how you build trust. And that's how it is with these small companies too. You know, and it, unfortunately, you know, time is a great hurdle with, with these companies too, because you get in most small companies, what I've found is you will like them, the business and the situation less, the longer you own them. It's yeah. the, it's the rare ones. You actually like them more. Yeah. Just like in every, every relationship in life. Yeah. You know, it's the same way with these, like we just, one of our newer investments we put on, we, what, and this kind of gets into the process of how we find things. Normally what triggers us to look at something is insider buying or a new management team putting basically skin in the game, skin in the game triggers. And usually what that looks like is an old situation business a new management team comes in injects five million dollars of capital redoes the strategy something new becomes something old and we want to find that transformation stage right at the point of that investment is usually what triggers our interest and it's usually when you look at who's getting those new people getting involved and you see like one two three four people that have built companies from zero to 100 million or a billion and you're like what are these people doing with this small obscure 
15 cent company, <laughs> you know, and that's enough to like, all right, let's get on the phone or get on a plane yep. and go meet them. Yep. And we see that maybe 10 times a year and maybe two of them are kind of actionable that, you know, and a lot of times it's just like, if, if you decided to do this in a small public company, it's like, you'd be a perfect example. Like what's Chris doing with this $10 million market cap thing? Yep. You know, he's not doing it to lose money. And why is he bringing his buddies involved in this? Well, he's not bringing them in to lose money. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's kind of commonsensical, but yep. it's kind of what triggers me to look. And so we had, as an example, we had one investment. I'm not going to name the name because it's no point to it, but there's a tr that type of event happened. It was like March of last year. We had two or three conversations with the management. The patriarch of a family office kind of took over a small public company and kind of brought in some of his legacy assets and his family office into it put several million dollars into it at the same time, brought some of his buddies that have been successful onto the board and things like that. Traveled out to meet with them in June, didn't buy any stock. We saw them turn profitable. We saw them do an accretive acquisition in September. We finally made a small little investment in December of this year. So that was nine months later. And we sort of got lucky because even though there was lots of fundamental progress, the stock didn't budge. Yep. And during this time, we gave them advice. You should do this, 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 this. And they listened. And so they were listening to us. So it was, a, it was an easy decision, an easy check to write. I mean, the loaded question is, what, what advice did you give them? I was going to tie it to you said that a lot of these public companies on the capital market side have been given bad advice. Yeah. Maybe if you could share, like, what is some advice you gave them? But I'm just curious, like, what is bad advice look like in this world? Usually it has to do with they're told to do some stock promotion, paying people to promote the stock, either through social media or whatever, you know, that's number one. Number two, even the way they raise funds sometimes, even though they're the main ones putting money in, like it's just structured weird. Like you don't like it'll be like they're putting money in, let's just say at a dollar and then they'll, they'll include a full warrant at a dollar fifty. Yeah. Just because one guy said they should. And they're like, all right, you know, it's like, well, now you're cap structure is sort of messed up. Like you didn't have to do that. You know, yeah, it's yeah. just like, and they don't know any better, Yeah, you know, or, and you know, like this last one, just like the name of the company was just dumb. I was <laughs> like, literally, I was just like, and they got so I was like, you got to change this name to this. And they changed the name to that. Like they were listening, like that didn't happen in one conversation, but over the course of months, I was yeah. like this, that name doesn't reflect who you are, where you're going, like change it to something that does, yep. you know, also about kind of doing reverse stock splits and eventually up listening to the nasdaq yep. like they didn't really think as much about that so getting them what happens to there? get the board composition in, in line to where they can potentially another year you know do a reverse stock split and then up list onto the nasdaq or the so NYC. that makes their share price just larger enough to yeah exactly yep. yeah it doesn't mean anything with the valuation it just means fewer shares outstanding yeah yeah if i was a micro cap ceo and you called me for our first meeting, I, I would assume it'd be due diligence or some type of discovery. What are you usually trying to get out of those first call, uh, first meetings? Do you have a, is it situation dependent on where the company is or is there something you're looking or a few things you're looking to get out of our first one hour together? And is it one hour or you usually get a whole afternoon with folks? It's usually a whole day. Really? Yeah, like when we went out to visit this company in particular, it was, it was a full day, meaning me and them, couple of the board members, people that worked there. And um, real quick, I'm assuming you didn't get a full day when you were first starting. They were like, no, Ian? No, but he wants a full day with our CEO. <laughs> <laughs> I, cu I, I cut my teeth 
into the qualitative qualitative side of investing. When I first mentor, and I actually just wrote a a blog post called Mentors on microcapclub.com where I talk about it, but I met him on a message board and and he was one of these, he was a he trained brokers back in the day, you know, and he worked, he had his own firm in the 70s and 80s, and he was cut from that cloth of like type A personality. You know, like now everybody's like symbiotic, like we can all make money together. That wasn't it's kind of the Michael Steinhardt era. It's like, no, like I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. You know, that yeah. type of era, which I have an affinity to that. Like I still like that. You yeah. know, there's part of me that's like, you know, it's kind yeah. of cool. You know? Yeah, you want to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's how he was, but he was very I mean, he would get an A plus in a how to win friends and influence people department. Like yeah. you he'd come into a room, he had a baritone voice, you could hear him from across the room, and he was very likable within like two seconds. And so he was the one that when I was in college. I would skip out on classes and I'd had it down to where I'd only miss one class, but I would travel around the country and visit companies with him. And I would just kind of be like holding his umbrella as he walks and, you know, <laughs> figuratively, figuratively. But, yeah. you know, he would let me there and he showed me how he communicated, like learning the soft skills, you know, which just how to be likable, you know, because people are going to tell you more if they like you, Yep. you know, and he had that down. And so... So, yeah, and then he, and he told me a whole bunch of other things, too. He was also a very concentrated investor. But I don't even remember what your first question was. But this, <laughs> Well, my first question was basically if you were to come visit with me, yeah. so it would be a day, what are you yes. trying to leave with on day one? And maybe it's, again, different situations require different results. But that's a, that's a big day to spend with somebody. There's clearly you have an agenda. Yeah, usually overall the general feel what I'm trying to do is figure out what their intentions are. Because in most of these situations I'm investing in, they're very capable people with a net worth. You know, and so are you using this public entity as a way to kind of get rid of the garbage in your family office? You know, kind of spin it out. Hopefully somebody else buys it. Yeah. You know, or is this like, what are your, or is your intention to build this just like you did three other things in your past career? Yeah. You know, and seeing what their pure intentions are and how they intend to do it. And, and also what I've found Early in my career, I would focus a lot on the CEO and the founder, not enough time on the people around them, you know? And so kind of the difference now is I really want to spend some time with the lieutenants that are there, Yep. you know, and also talk to a couple employees because, you know, the way you gauge culture isn't by talking to the person at the top, it's the person at the bottom yep. and seeing why they're there. And if they would move across the street for a dollar an hour or more, yep. you know, and so you want to talk to get a real feel for, for everything. What are the not so obvious red flags? It's difficult because they're now like I can usually see red flags and it's just like it's a pass. It's like I, it doesn't get to a conversation. Yeah. You know, but a lot, you still see a lot of related party transactions, you know, just weird things with real estate or something like that where they're just, you know, they're padding their pockets three different ways in that public entity, you know. So a lot of it's that. I don't think overall there's as much outright fraud as what most people would like to say there is in the microcap ecosystem there's yeah. certainly a decent amount of failure but then again i think that it was it's probably less than any other small business ecosystem whether it's private or in venture capital probably the failure rates less in microcap you know you know it's just that these companies happen to be public so we just get a black eye because these are yeah. public ones going bankrupt you know yeah but a lot of the a lot of the red flags are kind of commonsensical and a lot of them you alleviate by just seeing how the business has progressed and if it's just a growing profitable business yep. and kind of reading through the filings and, and if they do earnings calls or if they have transcripts or they've done interviews, you know, for their college institution, they gave 10 million to, you know, just seeing how they talk about themselves and other people. Yep. 
seeing how other people talk about them. So you'll set up a full day. I've never done one of these, so I'm just curious. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm interested, and I'm coming. And will they line out the agenda for who you'll talk to throughout the day? Or will you kind of send, hey, here's what I'd like to get accomplished today. Y'all tell me how I can get this done. I For the first trip, I usually let them lead it. Okay. Yeah. And you send a list of questions in? No. You just say, I'm coming. Yeah. I'll be like, hey, okay, if I come and visit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. De- it's like that Deion Sanders, when he first got to Colorado in this first team talk he kept telling him i'm coming and he, he, was, he <laughs> exactly. was still coaching at florida atlantic <laughs> yeah. But, yeah but you'll spend all day you're getting your questions answered you're figuring out leadership you're figuring out the incentives and their intent yeah what else is going into this is what other due diligence is happening for you to get to a decision yeah i mean a lot of times the fundamentals do does a lot of your due diligence for them like if a company's growing rapidly and it's profitable and they're obviously taking share or, you know, we do the normal kind of scuttlebutt work that normal people would do. Yeah. But we kind of let the business fundamentals lead a lot of that. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of the things, sometimes these businesses are growing. You can't really pinpoint exactly why. You yeah. just kind of have the broad brush strokes. And I think that's probably a good point to bring up. It's just like, you know, I'm still wrong quite a bit. You know, this is not something where I'm trying to, to play for perfect. Yep. You know, it's like this is. I'm hoping to be right 60% of the time. You know, I'm going to be wrong quite a bit. And being wrong doesn't mean you lose money. It just means it didn't turn out to what you thought it could be. Yeah. You know, you might still make money. It's just you held it for a year. And these are small businesses. They emerge in good ways and bad ways. Yeah. So some some people ask on that. I'll skip there for just a second. But when you buy something, are you expecting movement in the first 12 months or two years? Some of the questions that came in was just how long, how have you dealt with things where it's almost like you know you're right but the stock just doesn't move for for years on end yeah i mean i'm i'm okay i'm okay with the stock not moving as long as the fundamentals are improving yeah and I, th- I do think it's really important it's easy to say hard to do but to disconnect that stock price from the fundamentals yeah and just pay attention to the fundamentals of the business yeah you know and, and that's the key where where i've gotten nailed you know and other people have too is just you know letting the the stock price dictate your conviction Yep. You know, just because the stock's down, the business is bad. Yeah, yeah. Just because the stock's way up, the business is great. Yeah. You know, it's like you need to have sort of, some sort of normal pulse on that business. And there's enough in the financial documents they report every quarter to, to tell you that. But as long as the fundamentals are improving, that I'm okay holding. As a partner, do you let the leadership team know, I'm going to start buying? Or do you usually? Not wait? necessarily. Yeah. They usually know, though. Yeah. 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 I mean, some of these companies, I mean, I mean, they, they trade. Yeah. Give like it, a- it really depends. I mean, the, the, the difficult part about this is when you say micro cap too, there's, it's completely a 200 million market cap is completely different than a 20 million market cap, you know, describe that. So a 20 million market cap might be a 10, $10 million revenue company breaking even a 200 million market cap is probably a company that is doing 10 million in earnings. Okay. And as you know, as a business owner, those are you know, those are two different beasts. That's apples and oranges. Yep. You know, it's like hustle scaled. Yeah. You know, and we have both of those in the portfolios that we manage. And a lot of the times we're betting on these hustles that we think can scale. You know, and that's the beauty of kind of the microcap space is I don't need to find the next Google. I just need to find the next small business that can grow and not dilute me and earn more money. Yep. And that's predominantly. And a lot of times I don't know how big it can be when I eventually invest in it. Yeah. You know, because a lot of these massive winners 
even like spell down in San Antonio, which, you know, is talked about a lot about on Microcap Club and on social media, which has been like a 2000 bagger. Which one? Expel. Okay. X-P-E-L. Is this the number one stock of yeah, all time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even that one, like I, I visited that company in 2013 at 42 cents per share and sat across the table from Ryan Pape. That would have been a 10 million market cap. It was a 15 million run rate company, maybe earning a million. And so what they do is they sell paint protection film. So they put that on the whole car, the front of the car, protected from rock chips. And I mean, it's 2000 bucks. So I'm like, you know, how many rich people are out there where they're going to spend $2,000 and put on the front of their car, you know, and you can't do it yourself. You have to get a dealer to do it. It's like high friction experience. Like, how's this ever going to scale? Well, you know, went from 45 cents to $100 per share over the course of, you know, eight years, something like that. Yeah. And so some of these things gets back to first principles. Just find something small that's growing, that's profitable, it's not diluting. Yep. So during that 2000 bagger experience that Expel was 2000X, 7% dilution, you know, seven, you know, that's not much. Yep. And that's the key, you know, is they grew the company from 15 million to 400 million in sales, from 500,000 in earnings to 50 million without diluting. Is that easy and that hard, you know? It's like, <laughs> and <laughs> easy on, peasy. And yeah. on the non-dilutive on the non-dilutive part, as long as they're growing and they're profitable, they should have no reason to keep raising capital to dilute you. Yeah, I mean, and and obviously there's going to be moments in time where they maybe it, maybe it's an acquisition or whatever it is, but as long as it's as long as your earnings your earnings are going up faster than your dilution, you know, so your earnings per share is yep. increasing. You know, and, and that's the other difficult thing that I find in microcap, especially few people know how to raise capital effectively and even fewer people know how to even structure an acquisition. Yeah. You know, and so that's where it gets gets difficult for these smaller companies. To and and so you'll tell these small companies, hey, if you're going through this, I would like to be that partner that helps you think through how to but do yes. this. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You, fundamentals. Obviously, management on site. Is there any other due diligence you're doing before I mean, it, you, you get conviction? Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, what we try to do is usually there's one or two legacy shareholders that have been in there too long, or you know that have been there forever that kind of know where all the skeletons are buried. So we try to try to reach out to people that have owned the stock for a while. Yep. Because if, usually, if they they've been in it for a while, they're past the infatuation pay stage of just trying to get you to buy the stock. They're pretty honest. Yeah. And so. That's probably one of those little nuggets that's captain obvious, but few people do. It's just reaching out to shareholders have been in for a long time and just talking to them. Yeah. And they don't have to talk to you. Correct. They probably have a want to talk to you. But yeah. They don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. And usually by that point in time, they're not, they don't necessarily, they've been in for so long, they don't really care about a short term move from me buying it or whatever. They're in it for longer term reasons. Is it the same actors that are usually in a lot of these companies or all across the board? It can be all across the board. Yeah. I mean, you see, it's it's crazy. Like one of the situations that we own a little small position is, and as another example, you know, the the CEO today, 10 years prior, he got involved when it was a pump and dump. He was a shareholder that took part in a private placement directly in. He didn't know it was a pump and dump. He only realized that two years after that, he got pissed, did a proxy vote, kicked out the management team. Business was burning money. And this is a guy that owns a construction business in Iowa. That's a, just an entrepreneur, normal guy. 
you know, backstops it with a $2 million personal line of credit to keep the business going. You know, five, six years later, now kind of the Phoenix is rising back out. Yep. You know, it's a small little, small little business, but when he was in it, it was probably doing like 3 million in sales, you know, <laughs> losing a million. Yeah. And, you know, last year, you know, because he provided them credit when they needed it, he put more money in. He owns like 40% of this business, little business that yeah. just did 8 million in revenue and earned two, which isn't bad, you yeah. know. You know, and, I, and hopefully they can keep growing like that. And so, it was a public company at that time. It was size. a public company. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you'd be you'd be surprised. I think most people would be surprised. Like, I often say that in microcap, the businesses I'm looking for, they probably wouldn't even be the biggest company in your small town. Yeah. You know, and yes, they probably shouldn't be public. Yeah. But some of them should. And a lot of them can make really, really good returns for shareholders, if, even if it's a an above average business that can just capital allocate relatively well. Yep. You can auto zone this to, you know, AutoZone was one that just kind of bought back stock and it was an okay business, but ended up being a massive winner. You can see those same dynamics occur in kind of small public companies as well. You've I think you've just been describing this, but your lightning in a bottle concept yeah. is basically find companies that are small, profitable, and non-dilutive. Yes. Yep. That's the answer. Yeah. That's basically that's that's basically it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Once you're in a company, due diligence doesn't stop. You talk a lot about continuous DD. Yeah. How rigorous are you on these companies once you're in them? Are you looking at them every day, every week? What are you looking at? I'm pretty high touch, probably more high touch than most, mainly because if we own them, they usually are reaching out to me as much as I'm reaching out to them. Okay. And they're reaching out to you to say what? Just get to get my advice on things. Okay. Which is what I like. Yep. You know, it's like like last Friday, she just wrote our annual letter for our fund. And I said, you know, just to give people an example, like last Friday, four of the CEOs called me, asked me for advice for random capital markets questions. Yep. You know, and that's good. Yep. I, I want that. Okay. You know, but it's a lot of maintenance due diligence because, you know, it's kind of easy to get into these positions. It's sometimes harder to get back out of them because they are a liquid. Yeah. So just constantly being aware of what you own and maybe to give you maybe another helpful tidbit like i would say probably the average hold time a holding period for our investments is probably one or two years on average oh really yeah i wish it was forever interesting but you know it and it just shows how hard it is right yeah. it's like if you were to ask me how many investments do you still own today that you owned five years ago and i probably have owned in one way shape or form let's say 50 companies over the last five years you know i still own three four so that it's hard. And you've stayed in them all the time. I wasn't getting out and then buying Correct. back in. At yeah. A later and, but there's other 47 I sold. Yeah. Right. So this is not a coffee can, put it under your mattress and forget it type yep. of approach because these are small emerging businesses. Okay. You know, and most of the time they will evolve in bad ways, you know, or negative ways or a competitor impacts them or whatever the case may be. And you just need to be aware of the, the pulse in that business. Okay. But. So the ongoing due diligence that you're doing, what's triggering the sale at two years? Your 25% CAGR? It can it can be triggered for a lot of reasons. Normally it's a change in the business dynamics I didn't foresee coming. Or it's a loss of trust with the management team. They did something that I felt that they shouldn't have. Yeah. The good situations to sell are obviously when things go up too high too fast. Yeah. You know, we all want more of those. Yeah. You know, we all want more. <laughs> 
some of my investors are like, well, what's the breakdown between short-term and long-term capital gains? I'm like, well, short-term capital gains are a good thing. I mean, something went up too far too fast. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you but know, is there a metric that if it's hit this, we're out quick or it's just normally situation? when it comes to just a, a, I wouldn't say a normal, but a situation where the business is progressing, executing and the stock goes up. Usually if it's at a point where I feel like we're pulling forward the next, it depends on the situation, but the next three to five years worth of returns today, yeah, that's when I'll start to exit. Like an example would be, you know, a company where we, we get in and it's at 12 times earnings and one year later it's at 70 times earnings. Yeah. Well, 12 times earnings, not, not much is baked into that valuation at 70 times earnings. It's price for perfection. Yep. And in 90% of the cases, they will stub their toe in an upcoming quarter. And the stock will get cut in half. So that's why you take some off, you know, yeah. in those situations. And 99% of the time, you're right to do so. And once you're pulling the trigger, are you sizing into it? Or are you trying to get as much of it as you can right out of the gate? Usually, I, I have an intrinsic value of what I'm willing to pay up. Yep. Usually, when I'm in getting involved with something, I'm usually willing to buy the equity 25% higher. You know, if I'm a bid buyer in that, that means the idea is probably not good enough. I'm sitting below the bid, yeah. you know, waiting for it to get hit. Yeah. So that's, that's normally what I do. So I'm, I'm willing to move the market up to get a position because these things, like I said, some of them trade, you know, $30,000, $50,000 worth a day. That's it. So if you're trying to get a million dollar position, you, know, you, can, do, you can do the math. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And some, some of them trade less than that. And who are you usually buying from? Legacy owners or are there people trading? It's just in people that? trading it. Yeah. 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 Okay. You'd be surprised. I mean, there's, there's tons of people just trying to trade in these things. But if you're yeah. trading thirty to fifty thousand a day, the other the counterparty is probably some retail investor. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so these things are illiquid, but it's kind of like the law of gravity with these small companies. If the, the business excels, the earnings power goes up the stock goes up, liquidity always increases. Yep. So liquidity always increases with price. You know, so that stock at 50 cents trading $50,000 worth a day at a dollar will trade 200,000 at $3 will trade half a million dollars worth a day. Yep. So again, I don't really think too much about the liquidity. It's just, am I right or not? Right. Yeah. You said, I'm not interested in buying something that is undervalued that will always be undervalued. I want to buy, I find something undervalued that will get overvalued. Yeah. How do you know? Do you actually know if, or is there line of sight as to this is undervalued, even though it's good, it's probably going to stay undervalued? Like what I mean by that is I'm not kind of the normal kind of value or deep value mindset of just trying to find something just that's trading less than the intrinsic value. Yeah. Like I, I generally want to find unique businesses that just happen to be public and have a ticker symbol that are small, yeah. you know, that are growing double digits that are profitable. And honestly, it's just as simple as that. If you can find a very unique business, especially, I mean, extra points, if it's in kind of a consumer tailwind or something yeah. like that, yeah. where it's something that people can see on a shelf that you can get buy in from a consumer or retail investor later because they went and bought it for their wife or whatever it is, you know, like extra points for that. But it's generally kind of what it looks like. All right. I, I, I kind of want to finish discussion on emotions. Mm -hmm. As a real estate guy, it's like you buy the building, can't really price it every day. I can't even maybe price it every week. Even in the, the environment we're in right now where interest rates are up, everything's stalled. Yeah, values are down, but I don't truly know how much. Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about it. But man, I can go buy a few shares of a stock 
or God forbid I bought some Bitcoin on Coinbase and you're just staring at that thing every day. Have you learned to manage emotions? Do you, it's a, I think it gets back to just disconnecting from the stock, but I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek just because I watch stocks a lot. Okay. I do. Like I'm, What's your setup? It, it's it's cool to say, and everybody says, like, hey, I turn off my computer during the day or I check stock prices once a week, and that's great. No, I, I'm checking stocks 100 times a day. Okay. Because I have... You got the screens up? No, I don't have multiple screens. It's just, like, a lot of the stuff, if we're buying something, like, things can happen in a hurry. Like, liquidity all of a sudden shows up. Like, oh, now all of a sudden there's 100,000 shares in the offer. All right. And you have to be aware of it. Yeah. You know, and I got to take it. Yeah. You know, and so it's just, some, it's just how I've always been, too. Like, I'm one of these... It might sound odd, but like I'm a, I feel like I'm a very long-term oriented investor, but I check stock prices frequently. I don't think it hurts me just because I do have a pretty relatively good gauge on the intrinsic value of that business. Yep. And a lot of the times, the moment to buy or sell can happen in an instant, you know, where somebody just wakes up and says, well, what do I own this piece of, you know, you know what in the portfolio for? Just sell it, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, you, and you have to be aware and be watching. Yep. And that's your chance to buy. Or that's your chance to sell on the opposite side, you know? And when you're buying that, are you on Fidelity or some platform and you're just buying it right there? Or to get these things bought the way you want to buy them, are you dealing with brokers or? Well, it's a, it was easier when it was kind of just me with a TD Ameritrade account. Yeah. Yeah. But now I have like my prime is is a small firm. So they, they execute the trades on it. And I can give them instructions. But a lot of this stuff, like I'm kind of still have to be aware. Yeah. Yeah. But you're checking every day. Yeah. And it doesn't, you have no emotion. Like if, if you're, if you have a stock that just, that you're in and it capitulates. No, I'd, and I'd want to watch it just because I would probably want to buy it if the yeah. business is doing well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually I even wrote an article about this calling the art of catching falling knives, but usually there's at least once or twice a year where I wake up and one of my positions is down 30% pre-market for no reason other than just some person woke up on the wrong side of the bed and decided to sell all their position yep. at market. You know, and all those same emotions that everybody else goes through. And it's funny when it happens in pre-market, you know, all of a sudden you see bids just go away because everybody's like, what's happened? Is there a bad financing going on? Is the SEC doing an investigation? Like everyone thinks the worst case scenario is 90% of the cases, nothing's wrong. You know, and that's where you can kind of step into that gap and take advantage of an irrational stock price movement. Do you ever short anything? No, it just doesn't fit my temperament. Why? I don't know. Just wishing the worst happens doesn't fit. Yeah. I'm more of positive. Did, yeah. did, 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 was that an acquired taste or you've never shorted anything? I've, I've never wanted to try. Yeah. 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 I'm just kind of boring, long only trying to, and I'm not an act like even, even the letter I wrote recently to the partners, I was just like, I'm not, I view myself as a partner with the investments we're in. And I think a lot of people may think of activism you know, to get involved and force change. Like I'm not that way. Yep. It's not my temperament either. I'm more passive aggressive. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm a, I'm not an activist. I'm more of just a multiplier. I don't want, I don't want to get involved with things that are bad that can get less worse. I'd rather find something that's good, add value and be a multiplier for that's be great. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of have to know where your temperament sits with everything, you know, and what type of investor you are. And that's just the investor I am. Uh, how do you think about where we're at in the market today? It's at all-time highs. Everybody thought 23 was going to be just a you know, terrible year. Didn't end up that way. Now we're continuing to rally. Do you disconnect from where the market is and you're just lasered in on those 10 businesses? Or do you take any type of macro kind of 
thought into consideration when you're buying this stuff? I think on the macro side, just being cognizant of the types of businesses you're in. I mean, when interest rates rise, it's kind of giant risk off, which is why you see VC get nailed, you know, when interest rates were, were rising. And yeah, when you see, well, you saw it across the NASDAQ last year, first half of last year, you know, things just get bludgeoned. But if you're in a business that obviously doesn't need to raise capital or doesn't need to get capital, you're kind of, you, again, you can take advantage of that opportunity if it does sell off. Yeah. Yeah. In these businesses that don't need money, so they shouldn't be affected by it. Was the last big buying opportunity for you that was like a market reaction COVID when March no. of 2020? I, I mean, that was. And was that a new set of experiences and learnings for you? Sort of, but I've been through enough of those yeah. type of maybe COVID. Well, even COVID, like the GFC was worse than that. Like there's been several other ones that were bad. COVID was an odd circumstance for us because we had one company that at the low put out some news and the stock 10x in a day. Oh, really? And like negated out most of our loss that occurred during that drawdown. So it made us look a lot better than probably what we were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but it's also, you know, it's part of it, you know, a few eggs in the basket and one works during the bad times. It's, you know, it's, it's how you think about kind of putting a portfolio together too. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a, I kind of view it like a stew where individually they kind of look weird, but you put them together, it tastes good. Yeah. Because we have, we have healthcare companies in, we have gold mining companies in the portfolio. We have different types of industries, education companies. You're very industry agnostic. Yeah, it's more about finding the right people. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you won't touch industry-wise? I would say, I would say pure, I shouldn't say because we have one in the portfolio, but just pure story stocks. Yeah. 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 But you do have one. I do have one. Because I can't help myself. You know, we're all human. The story's that good. (laughs) Yeah. It's one, it's one where I've known the management for 10 years and know them very well are there management teams out there and their whole thesis is let's go find an undervalued micro cap stock and get into that or not so much it's no. more just we're in this business this is what we like to do it yeah. just happens to be public we'll go take over that company and you see a lot of fund managers or hedge fund managers that are activist types do that like yeah. to come in and force change yep because it's the same thing as if all the family business owners that you know were publicly traded. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same issues you see in small public companies where it's just, the, you know, everybody from your country club on the board and they're going to say yes to whatever you say, yeah. you know? And that's also why there's more activism as a percentage. I think 70% of activism happens in microcap, you know, because these are small businesses that you can kind of can take easier, take control over. Well, a $10 million revenue change. business is like, yeah, it's like 30, nothing. 40, 50, maybe 60, 70 employees at the most. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I bet there's some that are a lot smaller than that. Oh, it is. I mean, there's, it's, it's funny sometimes when you're like, like, how is this thing? How is this thing? But like, we just talked to one right before I came out here. We had, it was like literally a four cent stock that has a 2 million market cap that did a million in earnings. You know, it's something where the CEO was an old shareholder that came in, took over and he gave him $2 million worth of loans, you know, and they're in this little niche little market that probably has a total addressable TAM of. 50 million a year and they're the second largest player in it. And there's only one other player. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's just the cool conversation. It's like, wait a minute, this is like a 2 million market cap. You know, it's a, it's bizarre. The things like how this happened. Do you ever get sidetracked and want to get into large cap or see an idea or no, 
you totally you don't look at apple i stay in my lane honestly yeah. like every time i've been doing this for 20 years and every time i get out of my lane i get nailed yeah you know whether it's real estate or whether it's whatever i decide even dabbling into kind of private investments or whatever like i'm that's one area you know you can say the uniqueness is good or bad but i only am a microcap investor yeah. that's what i focus on 100 percent of my net worth everything I focus on and our fund, there's no, you know, I don't have Google alongside a 5 million market cap. Yeah. It's just all pure, you know? So. When does a micro cap end once it's at what size? <laughs> that's like, what's that's the, a good question. What, what's, when do you become it depends a, how much the inflation rate is yeah. currently? No, I would, historically it's been like 300 million USD market okay. valuation. Yeah. Now I would say it's probably more like 500 million yeah. kind of USD. And you've been going and, you said that you started in USA only, but now you'll invest across. Yeah. You don't have no problem investing in other countries. I'm still more attuned to investing in the US. Yeah. And I would say 70% of our portfolio is US centered because that's really kind of where our advantage is. And there's an advantage too, because even though the US is the most developed country in the world and probably the best markets in the world, the OTC level of tier of company. Yeah. It's it's really odd because there, there's probably no other place on the planet where you can have a publicly listed company that doesn't post any financials, that doesn't post anything. It's just like a ticker symbol that trades. Yeah, you know, and so you can just it's a lot. It's that even over the most developed country, we probably have the most inefficient market in really? most regards. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and that's just because there's so many. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you said something earlier. You said that these family offices will take over and then just dump a bunch of assets in there. We've seen that from time to time. And what are they yeah. doing? They're just hoping they can make it a story stock, tell a good enough story to make it pretend like these aren't a bunch of dogs. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like if you had some bad real estate, well, let's put our F-grade real estate into this shell. And, you know, yeah, but it's and it's just a not long-term game, you know, yeah. obviously. And it might not be that vindictive or they might, they might think that there's a play there, not a real one. But it's why when I sit down with people, especially if they had previous success multiple times, you know, just trying to figure out what their intentions are. You know, what you want to hear and what I don't tell them is, you know, we want to do this again. You know, this is my last hurrah. You know, I'm yep. 65. You know, there's an opportunity here. Yep. Bringing the, the boys back together or gals and let's see if we can do another multi-bagger. That's what you want to hear. Besides Microcap Club, what is the best source of information? Obviously, talking to people is great. Is there other... what? things on the internet, things you read, like what's, what else is a, a good source of info? It depends what type of info you're looking for. Yeah. You know, Twitter's an amazing resource now because okay. everybody just, you know, posts their ideas there, which is good. And it's kind of, we, we built nicely into social media too, microcap club, even though we're private, because a lot of the people that post also post on, on our forum, but it depends really what you're, what you're looking for. There's so many different people with sub stacks with blogs now okay that just freely share you know what they're doing and why and what they like yep you know so many different podcasts now where they you know they get another value podcast you know it's another one where he's bringing on people with ideas and some of them are microcap and you, yep. can, you can get information in you know any different way now it's pretty pretty wild and is there ever an idea that's great that you probably have an art like are you constantly surprised in this market yes yeah i am like i feel like it was like the old 1990s commercials about the internet like i reached the end of the internet yeah. like, that commercial every day i feel like it's going to be that like well i guess i've seen all of them yeah and, you know then all of a sudden you, you stumble upon something you're like whoa 
you know, and that that happens probably a handful of times where, and that's the exciting part, especially a person that's busy, just like you are too, where all of a sudden an opportunity or relationship or whatever just stumbles on your desk like it was meant for you and just, you know, Angela, clear the schedule. You know, <laughs> it's just like, I need to focus on this for a day. And there's well, the that best has situations. to happen in your world yeah. often. Oh, it does. Yeah. Real estate's so much slower moving, but in your world, you're saying there's days where stocks are down 30, 40, 50% yes. and it's time to, to move. Well, and, and especially in general, overall, microcap has performed poorly, very yeah. bad compared to the overall market. So overall, it's a great time to be looking at the space, let alone finding the good ones in the mix. Yep. Yeah. All right. Ian. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 